Civic Conversations is about sharing the good, discovering the civic impact that people are having on the world. Today's guest is Chris D. Chris was born and raised in Manila, Philippines in Vancouver, Canada. He came to the U.S. for college and medical school, maintaining close ties to the Philippines. Chris is currently a resident physician at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York, where he's training to become a radiation oncologist. Chris spends a lot of time in his capacity as a mentor for Filipino high school students applying to colleges and for undergraduate and medical students conducting cancer research. Thanks so much for being on our show today, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you guys. Hosting today, myself, Grant Parisi, and Scott DeSantis. So Chris, I'd love to start off by asking about where you grew up and your journey to the States. I guess I'll start. I was I was born in Manila, the Philippines. Had a great childhood, very close ties with my family. But due to political strife and as things were kind of getting a bit politically shaky, um, we we moved to Vancouver, Canada for much of my high school career with uh, with, with my sister and my parents. Since then, we, my sister and I moved to the States for college, um, and I stayed on in the U.S. for medical school. But as you mentioned in the introduction, a lot of my work and the things that I find meaningful um, are oftentimes connected with either directly with the Philippines or in parallel with my experiences that I saw there growing up. A lot of the things that I do often involve mentorship with uh, younger people in the Philippines and in the U.S. And I think a lot of that stems from being an older brother, actually, and I'm happy to talk more about that. But in terms of kind of professional stuff, I'm, I'm training to be a radiation oncologist after many, many years of medical training. At the end of many years of medical training yeah. is uh, is more training. It's more training. <laughs> so, yeah, a good path ahead. One of the most impactful things I gather from what you're working on today is helping others with the journey that you very briefly described just now. In mentoring high school students who are applying now to college in the U.S., what connection do you feel with those students and how are you helping them? Absolutely. So at the end of um, freshman year in college, um, a lot of us uh, kids from Manila, um, and I say that primarily because Manila is a city in the Philippines that's able to send people to to other colleges uh, outside the country. And I'll talk more about that in a bit. A lot of us are, are good friends, um, especially those who stayed in the Northeast. And what we came to realize is that a lot of us were in the places where we were um, not so much because, you know, everybody was super smart or super whatever, right? But because we had the right supports to get to the places that that, that we were at for, for college. As we quickly realized where we were for undergrad um, in the U.S. generally and in the places that we were for our institutions um, more specifically, um, opened a ton of doors, whether it was career or, or connections. And we realized that a lot of that was because, again, of the supports that we had in our high school career, whether through international schools in Asia or for my experience, the school I went to in Canada. Um, and we realized too that just in knowing a lot of kids from the Philippines, and by kids, I mean kids who are two, two three, four years younger than us, so not that much younger, um, is that they were as talented or more talented and, and people who would do fantastic work um, if given the opportunity to, to get education elsewhere um, with the intention of hopefully finding some way to contribute to the Philippines and to pay it forward kind of in the long term. And so with uh, several other friends, I helped to found College Admissions Mentors for Peers in the Philippines, um, which is a pro bono mentorship program for a lot of the, for high school students who are hoping to seek education, college education, whether in the Philippines, but with a focus on the U.S. as well. And so um, I've been doing that for 10 years now. I was initially part of the kind of steering committee and kind of the leadership. And now that I've gotten a bit older, have transitioned into kind of a pure mentorship role. 
Um, and that continues to be a huge source of meaning for me, especially because a lot of the kids that I've had the, the privilege to work with have done so well. Um, and I, I think their success is a testament to their ability to, to make the most of their opportunities and our small role in, in catalyzing that. Two kids that I worked with um, this year are, are phenomenal. Um, one is going to Berkeley to study a biomedical engineering. And he's not from Manila, which I think says a lot about how this group has been able to open doors for kids who don't always have the connections or the access to applying abroad. And then another student is a son of a farmer in, in one of the rural parts of the country. I remember we were working on his essays in the fall last year, right before application, and there was a big typhoon. And he said that his while he was working on the essays with me, his father was out farming in the rain. Um, and he said that his goal is to use his education. He's studying um, aeronautical engineering at Duke on a full scholarship, is to find ways and use science to actually predict the weather and and, and modify things in ways that are beneficial for his father's community and, and people who are farmers like his, like his dad. Do you find yourself learning from the students that you're mentoring? And I suppose, how would you apply that in what you're doing professionally? Absolutely. Um, I think one of the things that I have quickly realized from working with these with these students is that my experience growing up in the Philippines is by no means representative of well of what a lot of other people um experience growing up. I've had kind of relative privilege compared to the vast majority of people. Um, and it is kind of a humbling experience to realize that these kids achieve way more with far fewer opportunities in the beginning. And I think one person who comes to mind is someone I uh, I interviewed for undergrad, actually. So she wasn't a direct mentee, but she's now a, uh, um, I believe, a junior at MIT. Brilliant, brilliant kid. And there was a, a huge typhoon in 2013 that a lot of that that hit one of the provinces. And a lot of the kids from the capital who were in the colleges in the U.S. did a lot of kind of fundraising efforts to help the um, to help the uh, the communities that were affected. And we felt we felt we felt great. Wow. You know, we were able to contribute so much. But then in talking to this kid, she was like, oh, yeah, I lived through that. And she told me a story about how during that typhoon, which was one of the biggest in the in the past decade, she actually had to kind of climb out of their roof and stay on top of the roof in their home because it was flooding so much. Um, and that was, again, kind of a humbling thing to hear because you know, here we are like raising funds in the States from the comfort of our dorm rooms. And then seeing someone who are talking to someone and learning from someone who actually lived through all of that. And that taught me that that I am so naive compared to, to, to what other people um, know from from their life experiences. And I think that applies to everything we do in medicine because I've come to realize that medicine is much more a human endeavor than a scientific one. And so much of it is about learning the stories of the people that we have the privilege to care for. And I think a lot of parallels can be drawn between kind of an education type role that, that I that I do for, for for these mentees and a physician role in taking care of patients because these stories are kind of the gold and, and the core of what we are able to learn from these human interactions. How did you get started in both your interest and your your efficacy in mentoring others? So you came from the Philippines to Canada, ended up at Yale for undergrad and then Harvard Medical School, hardly a, a shabby educational track. Were there people in whose footsteps you were following and whose organizational structures you continued or or did you blaze a, a path of your own and or, or both? And tell us more just about um, the beginnings of, of all of this. I think I'll talk first about kind of what I've learned from my own mentors. And I'll say that 
everything I've achieved and, and there's a long way to go is because of the mentors and the people who've blazed the path ahead that that have made that possible. I say that in the context of of research because it's kind of the most recent and the most tangible um, research in medicine because the things that I've learned are simply because of the people who've taught me how to, how to, how to do them. I mean, I think the same goes for mentorship kind of in a broader sense where I think back to med school professors, to college professors, to high school teachers, to grade school teachers for whom, uh, because of whom I am where I am and which, which I think creates the onus to pay it forward. Um, I think in particular of a, of a, of my math teacher in fourth grade. And I just reached out to her on Facebook to tell her this. Um, I, was struggling a little bit in third grade academically. And I was like, well, you know, like that's kind of how it goes middle, middle of the pack. And we were in math class and she had these ridiculous quizzes that were normal up until question 10. And then had a ridiculously hard question for question 11 that was worth a grand total of like one bonus point. And I, I remember the first one, it was on like geometry, grade school geometry. And I looked at it and I said, well, you know, I finished the first 10 questions. I figured them out. I think I'm pretty sure of my answer. Why don't I try the hard one? I stared at it. I stared at it. And I stared at it, thought about it. And eventually I figured it out. And I was like, oh, that, that, that's cool. Um, and I got my quiz back and I got 11 out of 10. And I said, oh, you know, like this is actually possible. I mean, that kept happening over and over and over again. And I think what that does is it taught me that I can actually learn. Um, and that if given the opportunity, I'll be able to go above and beyond, um, at least academically. And, you know, I wish I could say the same for my uh, not so illustrious basketball career, but I'll take math. And I think that to be given opportunities like that from a teacher and from mentors kind of in, in parallel, whether it's in research or medicine, go a long way in terms of building a student's confidence as well as ability to find enjoyment in the work that we do. How are you connected with your mentees? The Philippines is probably the most social media connected country in the world. And I believe Facebook data say that that's true. So largely it's Facebook. But a lot of these kids come from high schools that we know. Um, and we've built up enough of a network of students as well as kind of undergrads and recent graduates in the U.S. and abroad who are Filipino who have ties to a lot of these high schools. So we're able to kind of reach out to their guidance counselors, um, give Zoom talks at their schools. I remember in the early 2010s, and that's funny saying that now, we used to go around the, the city and actually give talks in these in these colleges. And I remember there was one super scary day, maybe my fifth talk. And we, we were in an auditorium of 600 people. And I was so scared. But I think what that does is it gets the word out and hopefully tells people that it's actually possible to, to, to do these things. Um, and I think my student going to Duke on a full ride is a great example. He had two or three mentors. So I was kind of a small role, right? But the fact that he's able to get to Duke on a full ride, and I think they're even paying for his flights and his textbook, tells me and hopefully tells the other students that it is possible. Even it's difficult, but it's not impossible without the financial means to be able to get this kind of education. And, and the hope is to get that message out to a lot of these kids too. That's really cool and really impressive. I think a lot of our discussions here on on civic conversations are about celebrating the good that people are doing in the world, but also digging into a little bit of like, how are you doing that? How did it get started? The the, the logistics of it, because it's so cool to hear about the effects of sending um, someone to college on a full scholarship and the amazing things they're able to accomplish, but. What we're also interested in is how to do that. How do we keep that cycle going? So that feeds in a little bit to the next 
line of question I, I, I'd, I'd like to direct your way, Chris, yeah. which is talking more about some of the, the medical guidance um, that you provide to folks back in the, in the Philippines. And I'm not sure if it's a similar Facebook network or, or not, um, if, it, if it's different, but tell us more about maybe what the um, societal problem is maybe that's, that, that, that's leading towards um, a, a need for medical guidance from, from the States. And then, and then would like to hear more from, from there about, um, you know, your, your role in that community. I think I'll preface this by saying that the Philippines is one of many lower lower middle income countries where access to healthcare is essentially defined by one's ability to pay. And it functions in essentially a fee-for-service um, capacity where there's just not that much resources to go around by ways of ability to pay one or purchase power, and then the actual medications and, and doctor hours and doctors available. And so you have a country of 100 million people with a relatively low kind of doctor population where the wealthiest whatever percent are able to access care that I would say looks like care that you can get in New York or Boston. But everybody else essentially has to line up and wait for care and may not get care and often die before they get care. And so I think what's very difficult is that people get desperate, especially when their family members are sick. And that's understandable. And so oftentimes, especially in light of COVID and how that how COVID shut down a lot of the non-COVID-related medical things that were seen as not urgent, but I would say urgent to the patient. And a lot of people started reaching out to me, and I would assume even more intensely so to doctors who who, who trained there and who, who were kind of active there via social media, where they would ask for all sorts of kind of advice. And I think it speaks to, one, the lack of health literacy that is in the Philippines, and to the relative lack of access that the, that the poor face that they have to turn to social media to, to look for medical advice. And I don't claim to be a fully trained physician. I'm just about to start residency. So I, I never really told people to take what doses or what drugs, but, and I was cleared to, I was, I was kind of, I took a lot of effort to make that clear to folks. But one of the things that I would say I was able to help with is at least helping direct people to the right resources. Because it's one thing I realized is that even within medicine, a lot of it's who you know. If you know a doctor, they'll be able to get you seen quicker or you'll be able to get a discount or seen for free or get the medications. And so a lot of these folks who don't have those same connections would reach out on Facebook to me and my friends and ask, like, where do we turn? And one of the things that I was able to do was at least help direct people to physicians who would be able to help them. I'm thinking of one patient in particular who actually the mother reached out to me of a, a teenager with a recurrent, very rare tumor. And I uh, actually thought that it was a bit of a scam because it's a tumor that in med school, they tell us, memorize this for the exam, but you're never going to see this in real life. And lo and behold, before finishing med school, I sort of took care of one where the mother reached out to me and said, here are the test results that suggest a recurrence of the tumor. What the heck do I do? And so I sort of panicked. I um, I was like, well, I, I don't know who am I to know. Right? I, I didn't do my training there, but I said, okay, wait, who do I actually know? And I realized that I was connected with a couple of endocrinologists in the country, a couple of oncologists in the country who were able to actually get the patient seen sooner rather than later. And I would say that instead of kind of a directly medical role, um, giving a, I was not giving advice for chemo or radiation or surgery on a patient that I didn't actually see, but was kind of, again, more in an education capacity where the questions I was helping with were, what do these tests mean? What is my kid's prognosis going to look like? Or, or who should I reach out to? Um, and what should I look for if I 
to kind of head to the emergency room. And those kinds of questions, I think, were a space with which I was able to help um, this mother and her and her kid. But for me, what was the kind of best thing to come out of that was realizing that just by calling a couple of people, we're actually able to move things and, and move things along and help people who don't otherwise have these connections to get care. She got her surgery, and as far as I can tell, is doing quite well, actually. After the initial outreach, what's the ongoing communication look like with with these folks? And I guess, how do you think about either measuring your impact or trying to make more one-off examples, you know, even, even grander, I guess, what's, what's phase two or, or, or phase 10 here? I know you're not, yeah. you're beyond phase two, but tell us more about that. No, we're very much in phase two, actually. Like, I, I think that's such a big question and I wish I had the answers. Um, I, uh, when I was in college, I was actually toying between the idea of doing more kind of global health or health policy rather than, than medicine, um, because I felt that the systemic issues that I saw growing up in the Philippines were just so grave. And kind of two points. The first is that in coming to the States and in doing medical school here, I realized that the systemic issues are different, but actually quite parallel in the U.S. and that people don't get care because of financial issues or lack of connections in the U.S., same as they do in the Philippines. Perhaps the numbers are a bit different, but the but the kind of neglect that people experience simply because of birthright, really, um, are quite stark and we even i mean i saw them in 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 medical school a lot folks who just don't care don't don't get care because they they have no access and i think the second issue is realizing that the systemic changes are the systemic issues are so deep and that perhaps the impact that i was able to find most meaningful was on the individual basis because it's just so hard to actually make systemic change the philippines and i think the whole country would essentially agree is kind of such in, in such a systemic quagmire and you know it, it's got its roots in colonization in, in corruption and all sorts of things that make it so difficult to make change to affect people on the order of millions that i think there's enough meaning to to be able to help on the individual level but that's definitely that's the step 10 but we'll see one of the things that's super exciting in thinking about the next couple decades is that at least from the oncology point of view there is some interest in building the first cancer center in the Philippines. There are people who are moving that along and perhaps by 2022, even there will be something, but just for reference, there's going to be one in the whole Philippines where I think there's three in New York city. Can you tell us more about speaking of, of cancer research or just yeah. research more, more generally um, about some of the work that you're doing um, in the, in the field right now? So in 2019, I think it was, I decided to go into oncology. And I found a couple mentors who I met because of a rotation that I that I really enjoyed, who are willing to take me under their wing, which I think speaks a lot to kind of the role of mentorship in medicine in particular, but in life more general. And they taught me not so much how to be kind of a research monkey who just does the tasks that I'm told to do to, to get the next project done, but instead gave me the actual tools to think, I would say somewhat creatively about, about research. And they taught me not just how to analyze data, but how to actually ask intelligent questions about the stuff that we're doing. And in particular, I do a lot of work in domestic disparities in access to prostate cancer care with some interest in gastrointestinal disease as well. But what these mentors did was teach me how to do the data analysis, how to actually def- ask these questions and um, and define our endpoints and then and write up a paper start to finish. But one of the things that I've really enjoyed is doing that same thing for for, for the next generation of, of medical students and, and undergrads is teaching them how to do research. 
And that's grown into a bit of a, a nice little research group that's also always, always active where I've started mentoring kids to kids I, I met with yesterday, an MIT undergrad and an incoming Yale freshman, as well as a couple of med students from HMS that I've had the huge privilege of working with, which has extended as well to um, young doctors in the Philippines who are also interested in doing research. Um, and for me to be able to pay it forward to the people whose shoes I was just in, um, HMS students, as well as folks in the Philippines who are also interested in, in, in doing research um, has been something that is that is really meaningful to me. And I think the other piece of that too is that so much of biomedical research is from the global north, from the US, from Europe, from Western Europe, and from and from China and Japan. And not much time is spent looking at the health conditions, health, health services questions, um, and experiences with, with medicine that people in the global south face. And for me, a lot of the partnerships with colleagues in the Philippines and Southeast Asia more broadly has been a super fruitful and really fun um, kind of way to do research. How would you say your work with the Filipino community is now affecting the research that you're doing yourself? So a bit of a two-pronged answer. Um, I think the first is that a lot of the work that I've done with doctors who are based in the Philippines is to write about the experiences of cancer patients and also actually COVID patients in the Philippines in a way that is more kind of anecdotal and based on prior literature. And But I think biggest benefit is to be able to actually publish these perspectives in some of the bigger kind of international journals but my bigger bigger goal and this has not been done this is kind of in the works is to see if we could actually get data from these countries and publish them as part of the big kind of international consortiums of cancer studies how i quickly realized how difficult the kind of data situation is in the philippines primarily because in a lower resourced part of the world a lot of the money in medicine should go to patient care rather than kind of generating research papers but at the same time, I think there's so much space for data science, which is much cheaper than, than lab science, to actually drive forward the discussion of cancer care and healthcare more broadly in, in countries like the Philippines. Um, so one of my hopes is to use the, the platform that I built with my colleagues, publishing these bigger journals, to start galvanize, to start or to help galvanize a lens that focuses on the global south with regard to cancer research and biomedical research more broadly. So that's definitely a long-term goal that I, I hope to. To really pursue. That's super cool. Is there, in your mind, Chris, where would the funding come from for that? Or like, whose attention does one need to grab? Is that going to come from the West to help the Filipino communities in the States or, or in Europe? Or is that going to be a domestic effort once primary patient care is in a better place? My hope is for it to be ultimately a domestic effort that is in partnership with a lot of the centers all over the world. I'll take Japan and Korea, for, for example. Right? They're, they're relatively wealthier countries, but they're, they're, they're quite small. And yet they're able to play such a powerful role in biomedical research. And I, I know it from the cancer perspective, but I would assume it's there kind of in, in all spaces where the work that they do studies the experiences of, of Japanese and Korean patients. And yet they can publish together with the US and the European and the Chinese patients in studies that ultimately will ideally inform cancer care kind of globally. And I, I think kind of from the technical perspective, having a diverse patient base with a particular kind of tumor or, or disease actually helps the generalizability of the study. So if, if one does a study solely in China, can that be extrapolated to the US? Not necessarily. So the more diverse the patient population 
the more applicable and generalizable the findings. And the hope is to get the Southeast Asian perspective into that into that conversation as well. So the hope is for it to be a, a domestically driven effort in partnership with the countries that have done this for longer. And for me, one of the biases, and I, I don't know if this is ultimately right, but this is a bit of my gamble, is the role of data science in medicine, because data science is relatively less costly than, than wet lab biomedical research. And there's just, there's so many people in Southeast Asia who have so much data that I think could inform cancer care and healthcare more broadly for the rest of the world. I think there's 480 million people in Southeast Asia alone. Um, and that's a population that people don't, don't think about. People think of medicine in Asia as Japan, Korea, and China, that's it. And so I think medical perspectives as well as kind of human perspectives from Southeast Asia are also worth including in the conversation. And my hope is to play a role in that. What's giving you the most yeah. hope today? I would say the mentees. And I feel like kind of an old guy saying that. But I remember asking my mentor, who is about five years ahead. This is the other day. He's moving to California. So we started to Oregon and we had a bit of a goodbye dinner. Um, and I asked him, I was like, we owe you so much. Like, what can we do for you? Like in return, like a bottle of wine or something. And he said, he said no, the the work that, that you and my other mentees do is, is payment enough. And as he said that, he was like, oh, that feels kind of weird. I uh, just heard my mentor, his mentor, say that to him. And I share that now because seeing my mentees do what they do, do the incredible things that they do, gives me hope for a world that is, I think, better and, and kinder. And I think even from the purely kind of research medicine perspective, in talking to two super inspiring undergrads, even yesterday morning, tells me that they're going to go above and beyond what I'm able to do and what what, what my mentors are able to do. And, and it's an exciting experience to to see the infancy of that and how they, uh, how they, how they take what we give them and grow it more and more. Well, thank you for sharing, particularly reflecting on your experience either as a mentor or as a mentee, is how do you consider the challenges in the world right now that are in place that you hope weren't there? And, you know, what what will we all be doing to, you know, make the world a better place here in, in the context of what you're trying to accomplish? So I think from the, so it's so two challenges, right? I think one is the whole kind of COVID thing. And for me, one of the biggest challenges that the pandemic kind of places on people is the restrictions on their ability to kind of pursue what they want to do. And I think, and, and by that, I mean, whether it's kind of socioeconomic kind of recession because of, because of, because of COVID-19 or the restrictions on, on travel and on, and on meeting people and not to mention the kind of raw suffering that, that the pandemic has caused by ways of people falling ill and dying. I think that is something that's made it challenging for a lot of young people to pursue what they want to do. And, and I hope for that to kind of be resolved with vaccinations and kind of advances in technology to to get us back to a place where we're actually able to kind of move things forward. But I think a touch of a silver lining comes in the the uh, proliferation of kind of online platforms, um, which in the research community, people have remarked about this a lot, is how it's actually opened doors for international collaboration. Because it's no since it's not weird to Zoom someone from Cambridge and to Boston, for example, it makes it much less weird for someone to zoom from Boston to Paris or Boston to Manila. So what that does is actually facilitate a lot of the international collaborations. And one of the groups that I work with, it's a bit of a COVID group out of the Beth Israel. Every time we have meetings, it's such a struggle to schedule people because we have people in Taiwan, we have people in the Philippines, we have people in Spain, we have people in, I believe, Munich. And it makes it much more 
much easier to have these conversations um, across the world and, and make the world a much smaller place. I think that's one silver lining um, um, out of the uh, the pandemic. I think the second piece, and something that I think about a lot, is I think the world in general needs to think a little bit more critically about everything. Um, and I say that from, you know, I, I understand that said from a point of luxury and that I am not hungry. I'm not kind of needing to work to feed myself. Um, I, I work to kind of pay rent, but, you know, I'm, I'm not like starving, um, that I have the luxury of time to be able to think. But I believe that if the world spent a little bit more time reflecting and thinking about the choices that we individually and we collectively make, I think the world, world will be a much better place. And I mean that in terms of the political mishaps that have happened the world over, um, as well as kind of individual decisions that we make with the people we see every day, um, where if we pause and think, I would argue that people would pick the kinder thing. And for me, I, I don't know how to how to kind of engender that in people. I actually would hazard that people are doing a better job of that now compared to the past hundreds of years ago. But I, I don't know for sure without having lived those times. But my hope is that people pause a little bit more and reflect a little bit more before they kind of act. Um, because I think that would tell people that there's much more value in 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 in, in being good. I'm gonna let that stay on the on the airwaves for for a few seconds, just because I feel how how powerful that is. Just pausing and thinking and, and doing, as you say, Chris, the the kinder thing. I think that contemplative approach is. I mean, it's power in what you've been able to do is uh, is evident and. Well, the Zoom, the Zoom platform and connection to um, international folks has, has allowed us to share a greater variety of stories on, on our podcast. So <laughs> that, is, um, that is, is one offshoot um, of, of the nature that, that you're talking about. And um, yeah, I, I, think that, I think there's a lot to take stock in in, in in that summation. So thank you so much for your time on our show today. I learned learned a lot. Um, I think that delving into a lot of cancer cancer research papers um, would would be maybe a little bit beyond my pay grade, but seeing the effect that just taking some time and, and being forced in your community is something that that we all can do. So Christy, thanks so much. You can listen to more civic conversations online or on your favorite podcast app, and you can reach us via email at civicconvos at gmail.com. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Absolute pleasure. Mm-hmm.